record. We're recording for the podcast online. Well, let's do it. Okay. So the doctrine of providence. If people, by the way, um, there are notes on the app if you haven't yet logged into the app before. You don't need to follow with the notes. Um, but if you log into the app as a person who, as a member of the group, then you'll be able to see the resources and stuff. But you can also follow along with someone next to you if you want. So I have notes posted, and you're welcome to use those or not. But So today, we're looking at the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence, we talked last, last time we met about the doctrine of creation. And in a lot of ways, I think the doctrine of providence is, is rightly put right afterward, because creation is how did God create the world? We're talking about that God created the world, not so much how. We, we don't know how he did it uh, by the word of his power. There, that's enough for us, I suppose. But then, okay, God created the world, and now God sustains and governs the world. He created the world, now God sustains and governs the world. So the first point, God sustains everything. A few verses I have for you here. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. God preserves everything that is. He preserves it all. It's in his hand. Job 34 says something similar. If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Job 12, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. God sustains our breath. God sustains everything. Daniel chapter 5 talks about our breath specifically, the God in whose hand is your breath you have not honored. Hebrews 1.3 is maybe one of my favorite verses about, about this, this topic. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is Jesus about the Father's nature. And he upholds the universe. Literally, the universe is a translation of all things, so I think universe is an appropriate translation, but just to make sure that we get what's kind of under the, under the hood here. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything he sustains is by his word. He created by his word, and he upholds and sustains by his word. God holds everything. God sustains everything. Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The whole universe is held together by Jesus sustaining it. If Jesus were to do that, it would just decay into, bro not even brokenness, but nothingness. The, the, the universe exists because God holds it together. And finally, Acts 17, verse 28. In him we live and we move and we have our being. All that we are, we live, we move, we have our, our very being, our existence is due to God sustaining us. So that's how God sustains everything, by the word of his power. So that's God sustains everything. That's part one. Part two is going to occupy a lot more than half of the time, but this is the other half of the Doctrine of Providence. So first, God sustains everything. And now we're going to talk about how God governs everything, whether he ordains or causes, to what degree does he cause, stuff like that. So here, before we go there, though, 
I think it's important to think about the goal of providence. What is the goal of providence? So a few verses here. Number one, we exist for God. We exist for God. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So we exist for God. I think in a lot of ways that that is not such a surprise for us. God created the world that he would be glorified, right? Like I think that we, we talk about that a lot, and that's right that we talk about that a lot. I'm going to put a little more specificity on that this morning, but it's true. God made the world to be glorified. So in a, we exist, our existence is for him, for his glory. It's also for us, and we'll talk more about that too, but we exist for God. We exist for God. Not just us, though. All things exist for God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist. Okay, so that's a little more specific. It's not just that we as humanity exist for God. Everything exists for God. For whom and by whom. Jesus created it, and he created it for himself. All things. All things. His goal is that he, his glory would fill the earth. Numbers 14, 21. Truly as I live. And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, so the whole world will be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's what God wants with the earth. But then specifically, we also have something a little more specific than just that his glory fills the earth, with knowledge of his glory. Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So God isn't only concerned to create and have creation be glorious, and although it is, but rather for people to know and be consciously aware of his glory in all the earth. And so I mentioned we're familiar with God created for his glory, God sustains for his glory, he does things for his glory, for his glory. We talk a lot about that, and we're absolutely right to talk about that. I want to give some more specificity to that, though. I want to suggest, not just, I want to tell you God's goal in providence is that God's people would lovingly glorify him. I'm going to kind of try to demonstrate that with a few more verses here, but God's purpose in providence, his ultimate goal in all of his providential actions is that God's people would lovingly glorify him. So not just that he'd be glorified, but that God's people would lovingly glorify him. I, I think that's God's goal in providence. A few verses for us. Ephesians 1, 4 and 6. God shows us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. Predestination, that's later. We're not going to talk about that right now. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay, before the foundation of the world, I know that predestination is related to providence, but we're going to put that in its own group downstream. So I'm, I'm punting on... on uh, God shows us in Jesus before the foundation of the world in love, according to his purpose, to the praise of his glorious grace. Before the foundation of the world, God decided we would praise him. That was God's goal before the foundation of the world, that we would praise him. Ephesians 1, 4 and 6. Ephesians 1 goes on. God's purpose in working all things, in fact, is that God's people would praise him. 
Ephesians 1, 11 to 14, you've probably heard this, maybe you've heard this verse before. In him we've, we've obtained an inheritance. In him we have obtained an inheritance. That was a tough one. Okay. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why does God do all things so that God's people would praise God? That's why God does all things. So that's why I'm saying that God's purpose in providence is that God's people would lovingly glorify him. It's not just, sometimes people will say, um, okay, God wants to be glorified. And so he's going to either be glorified by his people praising him or by people being punished eternally. And that's going to glorify God. Either way, God's going to get the glory. I think there's an element of truth to that, but I, I want to point out God's ultimate purpose is that God's people would glorify him. If people, and I, I believe it's true that people do end up being punished. I, I do believe that's true. I think that's part of God's promise. We're going to talk about that. Ultimately, though, God's purpose is not just to be glorified by people in hell. God's ultimate purpose is to be glorified by his people. How does that fit together? I'm going to try to show you in a moment. But God's purpose in working all things is that God's people would praise him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we would praise his glory. Okay. That is, even some people don't even think that that's God's ultimate goal. I, most Christians, I do think, think that's God's ultimate goal. A anyway, at this point, we, what time is it? It's 8.21. We have now used up all of our agreement time, and now... A lot of Christians sharply disagree about everything else that we're about to talk about. So I want you to know that. And I'm going to, from the outset, try to offer you what kind of the breadth of Christians believe. I am going to offer you what I think and try to tell you what I think is true. But I also want to do that in a way that's at least open-minded enough to tell you what other views there are because... I'm not the only one who has an opinion about this. So there are sharply different views about how God governs the world. You've probably heard of the Calvinist and Arminian debate. That is a lot of what we're talking about here. So let me, let me give you what the Arminian, the traditional Arminian position is. And Arminians didn't invent this. Arminians were part of the Reformation. But the, the view that they hold is very old. It goes to the early, early church. Anyway. We call them Arminians because we're Protestants, and this is the issue that we care about as Protestants, but we're not the only people in the world. Anyway, I, I can still submit to the Arminian-Calvinist language, but it, this didn't just start with Arminians and Calvinists. Anyway, okay, that's neither here nor there. Here's the fundamental tenet of the Arminian position. Um, you've probably heard of like, people who center them, their view around free will. The fundamental tenet of the Arminian position is that God must preserve free will for human experience to be genuine. God must preserve free will for human experience to be genuine. Therefore, now whether that relates to our choices, our loves, our prayers, our salvation, etc., free will must be preserved for our experience to be authentic. Therefore, God does not cause or force or determine that people would do anything. Instead, he gives us free will. As we say, we're going to talk about that phrase in a moment. 
And that free will empowers us to freely choose decisions or our actions without God determining those actions. That's the, that's the traditional Arminian position. A, a little one step further than that is the open theism position. Open theism wants to be Arminian, but Arminians don't want open theism to be associated with them. So that's a little bit of, there, there you go. They, they want to be called Arminians, but Arminians are like, we are not that. So the view of an open theist is that is sim- they revolve themselves similarly around free will. But what they do is they actually say, God does not know the whole future. He doesn't know the whole future. The more responsible open theists will say, God purposefully limits his knowledge in the same way that Jesus limited himself in the incarnation. So it's not like totally groundless, except that God does say he knows everything. So I I really don't think we should let this hang out too long. But anyway, the the least responsible open theists just say God doesn't know everything. That's just how God is. That's God's nature. I think that is saying God is God. I think that's really bad. Anyway, so that's open theism. God doesn't know the whole future, whether he limits himself or he just doesn't know. Another position that people hold, so this is the third of four, so we're almost done here, is Molinism. Molinism says God directs everything, but he doesn't cause everything. He directs it, but he doesn't cause it. Molinists usually think, oh, Arminians and Calvinists, we're doing everything you're both wanting to do. So we're a happy harmony. Neither Arminians or Calvinists are usually very satisfied, but that's just kind of how everybody, that's how they interact. So Molinism says this, God knows what everyone will do in certain hypothetical circumstances. And that's true. God, we know that God knows that. God knows everything. Unless you're an open theist, which you shouldn't be. So, okay. God knows all hypothetical information. How will people respond to any hypothetical situation? And then, God then, therefore, situates and orchestrates the world such that it is inevitable that we would do the things that we would do because God set it up such that we would do it, but that it would be inevitable that we would do it. God can do that because he knows how we would hypothetically respond in every situation, and so he brings about that certain situation that he's determined by setting up the world that way and letting us do it on our own accord, but he set it up so that it was inevitable. That's a spark note summary. Um... So the uh, supposed, I shouldn't say supposed, I, I want to be friendly. The, 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 I, uh, I, I really do mean that. I do want to be friendly. Um, the the, the pe- people who are Molinists will say, look, we've, we've solved the issues because it is God who planned it. So God's sovereign. God is providential. And yet it's you who did it. So it's your fault. Now all Christians need to say that. All Christians need to say God is sovereign and yet you're responsible. I think that's just what the Bible says. I'm not a, con- uh, so I, I should have said so. Neither of the three views I've posited for you are my view. Um, although I, I have respect for these views, I, the, none of those are what I hold. I hold to, and I, here we go, I'm coming out as a Calvinist here. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I know, I know. Okay, the traditional reform position is the one that I happen to hold. Uh, similar to the Arminian position, this is an older view than just Calvin or something. It goes back to at least Augustine in the 4th century. But the view of meticulous providence, and I'm going to explain more of what I see in the Bible and why I think that's the case and all that stuff. But here, let me give you a summary of the view. God proactively sees to it 
that every single thing that happens happens exactly as he determines. So meticulous, maybe people haven't heard that word before. Meticulous is like the meticulous details. If someone's meticulous, they're like, well, what about that, what about that? And so meticulous providence says, God has determined all of those meticulous details of the universe. So God proactively causes everything to happen exactly as it does. And God is not himself evil or sinful by seeing to it that evil and sin would exist. Is that a contradiction? It's at least mysterious, and I admit that. But I do honestly think that's what the Bible says, that God sees to it that these things happen, including sin and evil, in such a way that he himself is neither sinful nor evil. How does he do it? I honestly don't know. I don't know. I think that's a mystery. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we, we may do all the words of this law. I take this verse to mean there are certain things that are revealed that we have to say. We got to say that. Okay. God is in control. We are responsible. And God is good and not evil. I think we need to say all three of those things. How we put it together, that seems to me not revealed, seems to be a mystery in my mind. I don't see how that's been revealed. So I'm my, I'm just kind of, maybe this is just a testimony, I guess. But what we need, as no matter what our view is, as Christians, we can leave mysteries mysteries, but we need to say what the Bible says. Now, that I'm not saying that that makes me right. Arminians and Molinists, I'm not and give this to open theists, but they're, they're good Christians who are also struggling with what the Bible says about this challenging issue, right? So I think we need to give good respect there. No matter what we do, though, the secret things, let's leave those secrets and mysteries. Let's not trump a view because it's mysterious, right? But let's take what's revealed and do the best we can to go with that. Okay, let's, let's keep going. I know that now we have questions, and hopefully my, my hope is that we would answer those. So here we go. Perfect. Okay. Let's identify some of our assumptions. Our assumptions. Free will. Okay, from the outset, I believe we have free will. Maybe that's a contradiction, and I'm going to try to convince you that I'm not being contradictory, but here we go. I think we have free will. But before we say that we have free will, I want to ask, hold on, what is freedom? I mean, we, we say all the time, if I, if I don't have free will, I'm just a robot. I mean, we've heard this before. I understand what people are saying when they say that. But I don't know that the Bible describes freedom the way that we are describing freedom. Now, I think we have the freedom we're describing. But when we just say from the outset, well, I've got to have free will. I've got to be free. What do we mean? And how does that relate to what the Bible says about freedom? If by freedom we mean we're independent from God, that doesn't sound like freedom to me. To be independent of God's control, just in general. I don't want to be independent of God's control. I want to submit to God. Is it undesirable to be determined by God? I, I want to define freedom ultimately as a relationship with Jesus, not I have autonomy, whatever that is. I think I have it. Just so, just so you know. I don't think I am a robot, but how? I'm trying to push on why do we insist on having freedom as autonomy? Okay, Romans 6.16. 
Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? The question here doesn't seem to be, am I free, but rather, to whom am I enslaved? Does that make sense? To whom am I enslaved? Freedom, I've, I'm, I'm realizing I have some themes in my preaching. I've literally quoted this verse both times in a row that I've preached, and now I'm doing it a third time in this class. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Where am I? Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Okay, slavery is sin. Freedom is loving God. That's freedom. Man, I want free will. I want a will that loves God. That's not what I mean by free will when I say I affirm it. I'm not trying to be so cheeky, like backwards, like, I believe it, I just redefine it. But I, I am pushing on what, it, what are our priorities when we insist that we have freedom or autonomy. Captivity and slavery looks like 2 Timothy 2.26. Praying that they would come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, being captured by him to do his will. Man, in that sense, it really doesn't sound like... People have free will. Like, they're captured by God to do his will. That's not freedom, is it? I don't think that's freedom. Is it free if we are liberated from the control of God? I don't think that's a helpful way to think about freedom. I think that would be slavery to be liberated from the control of God, not freedom. Okay, that probably opens up a lot of questions that I hope to responsibly cover in the next 30 minutes. So here we go. Another assumption, though, that I think I want to I want to poke at. If God is the ultimate cause of my actions, can I really be responsible? That I think that's an important question. Some people say, no, no way. I need to be the ultimate determining factor if I'm going to be held responsible. I understand why people say that. That is how our experience is perceived. But I honestly think that that is an assumption we bring to the Bible, not an assumption that the Bible shares or something the Bible actually teaches. Let me give you an example. There will be more examples like, but I, I want to poke at some of these assumptions that govern our minds, I, uh, that I think govern our conversations about this topic. God, on the one hand, sends a cruel shepherd in Zechariah eleven sixteen. In the very next verse, though, God punishes that shepherd for being cruel. God proactively causes this cruel shepherd to come about, and then the very next verse punishes him. Okay, Zechariah 11, 16. Behold, I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their roofs. Cruel dude, cruel dude. Next verse. Woe to my worthless shepherd who I raised up a verse ago. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. I don't think the Bible shares the assumption that I need ultimate determining power over my actions, ultimate, in order to be held responsible. I think I need to genuinely have done the actions, willingly, and I think that we are in I hope to show that in a moment. But I don't think the Bible shares the assumption that if God is the ultimate determining factor, we're not responsible. I think the Bible says the opposite. Now, okay, we've talked about free will. That might be a little disorienting. I, this was hard stuff for me when I first started grappling with this. So I want to honor that this is perhaps even like disorienting and emotional and all that. Remember God's ultimate goal. What is God's ultimate goal? That God would be lovingly glorified by his people. 
God's goal is not to make us free or autonomous in the normal sense of the word. Although I think we are genuinely willing. I, I, I think that. But what's God's goal? God's goal is to make us free, not in autonomy, but free from sin. That's God's goal so that we would love him and lovingly glorify him. That's God's ultimate goal. Our autonomy may be a part of that, but it will be subservient to that ultimate goal that God has. Okay, okay. We haven't even positively gotten to too many, many verses except to talk about our assumptions, but we still got it. We have, we, okay. Are there problem passages? There are problem passages for the view that I'm articulating, and I thought I would just say those right in front. <laughs> um, I don't want to ignore the passages that people use to say things other than what I'm saying. So let me just right from the get-go tell you reasons why do people not believe what I'm saying. On the one hand, God truly wants everyone to be saved. God truly wants that. To which every Christian, I put in parentheses, amen. <laughs> yeah, we need to say that. He does want it. Ezekiel 33, 11. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. 1 Timothy 2. God desires all people to be saved and to come to an knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God truly does want everyone to be saved. Also, God truly invites everyone to salvation. Everyone who's heard a gospel call, but it's a genuine invitation. We're going to talk about the gospel call later, so that's another one I'm punting on. But God truly invites people to salvation. Let the one who is thirsty come, Revelation 22, 17. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let him come. Let him come. Whoever believes, let him come. God genuinely invites people to salvation. Also, people are truly not saved because they are unwilling. It is because they are unwilling. Again, amen. Matthew 23, 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. It is because we are not willing. It is because we are not willing. We have to say that. Amen. All Christians must affirm those things. But why don't I think that that's a problem for the view that I'm articulating here? I think that God purposefully does not carry out his desire for everyone to be saved. Although human willingness is the immediate cause of disbelief, the ultimate cause of disbelief is that God prevented them from believing. That, that's what I think. Why do I think that? I hope to show you in a moment. But that's what I think is going on there. In God's goodness and justice and wisdom, he purposes the universe in such a way that human desires are real and causal, causal, causal. That human, human desires do make things happen. Human willing really makes things happen. But that he is the ultimate reality and the ultimate cause. That, that's what I'm saying about these passages that sometimes people will use in opposition to the passages, to, to, to the view that I'm holding. Okay, that's our preface. Okay, here we go. What are some passages that do show? What, what, what are, do, do, do you have a question, Tommy? Sure. So how is what you just proposed different than the thing that's between Calvinism and Arminianism? Because it sounded like you proposed the same. So, yeah, I see what you're saying. 
Why is that view different than an Arminian view? No, no, no. That I just offered. Molinism. Oh. How is what you just proposed it? Because different than Molinism? Because Molinism. That's a good question. Thanks for asking that. Yeah. Molinism doesn't say that God proactively does everything. Molinism says there's a sense in which God is passive because he sets up the world. Oh, okay. But then the world does it. Okay. I agree with half of that. I think the world does do it. I think God does it in the world. I see. Does that make sense? That's a really great question. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking. Thanks for asking. Okay, that's good. That's good. Okay, what are some passages, Holden, that show meticulous providence? So far, I'm not convinced. I imagine that's what you're thinking. Okay, Ephesians 1, 11 to 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Not just watches, not just allows all things, not just watches all things except for free will, and free will really needs to be preserved because that's how God is limited in terms of his power with respect to our free will. No, God works all things. Everything that happens, God does it. He works it. It's an activity. It's not just a TV show. That's, that's, a, that's not quite fair to say that people think it's a TV show. But God's not just watching things happening or sitting back. God is working all things. And for what? For what? So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. He works everything in the universe such that God's people would lovingly glorify him. That's what I think that's saying. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together. God has a particular purpose in working everything, all things. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I think God does work everything meticulously. That's, I think, what everything refers to. Okay, if that's true, if that's true, what do we do about evil? I think that's like the big question. That, so as I have studied for this week, I knew I had a strong opinion about this, so I purposely read other people who dis disagree with me so that I could try to be accountable to other views. This is the number one pushback. What about evil? Are you making God responsible for evil? We gotta say this at least. God always does good. God always does good. Is this a contradiction? I don't think so, but I'm doing my best to hold, maybe not intention, but various things that I find difficult to fit together, and I just, I'm trying to say them all at the same time. God always does good, we have to say this. Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect, and all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. God is not evil. God is not evil. Whatever we say, God is not evil. Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, all of them. He's not just mostly good. He leaked a little bit of evil in there, whatever, but it's mostly, no, he is righteous in all his ways. God is perfect. Zephaniah, the Lord, the Lord is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Related, the blame for evil is never on God. 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
Remember when God created the world, he made it very good, right? We talked about this in our doctrine of creation. God created a very good world. A very good, he said it's very good. And then humanity brought that evil into the world. Humanity, Adam is the one who cursed, uh, who, who got the, well, God's the one who cursed the world, but it's because of Adam's sin that God cursed the world in punishment. Evil is not to be blamed on God, 1 John 2, 16. Okay, now we're getting into some maybe more things that we're inclined to resonate with. God does our obedience. God does our obedience. Philippians 2.13. You've heard this verse before. It's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who does. Do you have a good desire? Is there any desire in you that's good? God did it. God did it in you. Both, not just your desire, or, or it's not just like, I did this good action but I didn't feel good about it. No, both your will and your work. He works in you to desire and to carry out good pleasure. God does our obedience. God does it. Hebrews 13, now may the God of peace who equipped you, dot, 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 may God equip you working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. God works our obedience. 2 Thessalonians 1. May God make you worthy of his calling. May he fulfill every resolve for good works. And may he be glorified in you. So God is the one who makes us worthy. God is the one that fulfills every resolve for good works in us. And what's the result of that? He is glorified. God's purpose is to be lovingly glorified by his people. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, right after the great, it's not, by, it's not by works, it's by grace through faith so that no one may boast. Right after that, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Welcome, Isaac. Go ahead, take a seat. Good to see you, man. Good to see you, too. Um, so, yeah, we're saved not by works that no one may boast, so that we would do good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God does our obedience. God also does our faith, our conversion, specifically, not just our good works, but even the very fact that we are saved is because God did it. The verse that's very famous is rightly famous, Ephesians 2.8. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. God's the one who does this, right? I think we're familiar with this, at least. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why can I see God? Because he says, let there be light. John 1, We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's God who did it. It's God who did it. I think we're used to saying this part of God's providence. I don't think we're used to saying the rest of it, but I think we're used to saying that. God does our good works. God does our conversion. It's him. Now, people will object, does this... By the way, Isaac, we're talking about the doctrine of providence, just to give you a little context for what you're walking into right now. Um, So welcome. (laughs) Um, Does this take away from our free will? This is where people will bump into, okay, so God does it, but does he just like... Give me the freedom to do it so that I still do it proactively on my own. I think God works in us in such a way that he is the ultimate cause, but that we are still willing. Why do I believe that? 2 Corinthians 8, 
16 to 17. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus. So God put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Okay. God put it into the heart of Titus. So he's going. Because God forces him to and he doesn't like it and he's kicking and screaming. No! God works in him and he goes of his own accord, it says. Of his own accord. I think this is similar to Philippians 2.13. Good morning, Chloe. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Are you not willing now that God has worked in you? No, you are willing. You do do it. God is the one who gets all the credit for it ultimately, but it is still a genuine will that you have. It's just that it's God who worked it in you. So I think God works in us in such a way that we are genuinely willing of our own accord. I have a little, almost a joke in the in the note that gates can do things of their own accord. The gate opened for them of its own accord. I just thought that was a funny. Uh, little, we, I'll, I'll move on. Um, okay. Anyway, yeah, thank you, Alden. Stick to Okay. Okay. So, I think we can accept that God, or more easily, I think we can accept the role of believers. But what about unbelievers? Uh, this is a this is a really important point because. Again, what's God's ultimate goal? That God's people would lovingly glorify God. So how do unbelievers fit into this? I think this is designed to be a sobering truth. I think, I think it's purposely designed to be a sobering truth. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, I think is a, a good place to start. God speaks to Pharaoh. Remember what happened to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was enslaving the Israelites and then God basically wiped him out in the Red Sea. You, you, you know that story. Okay. God tells Pharaoh why he has raised up Pharaoh. Exodus 9, 16. For this purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Why does Pharaoh exist? It Does Pharaoh exist because Pharaoh is like struggling with free will and is wondering... How do I how do I kind of do that? And God is like, man, I I wish. So there's a sense in which God really does want everyone to be saved, right? So we don't want to say only one thing. God does want that. He does want it. But why has He raised up Pharaoh specifically? He wants Pharaoh to come to a knowledge of the truth, be saved. We are told that in the New Testament. But what does God do? He does something different than what He wants. I've raised you up, not that you would be saved, but that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth, and it worked. How did it work? Rahab, a little while later in the book of Joshua 2, some people, some Israelites bump into Rahab, and this is what she says. I know that the Lord has given you the land, because we have heard that the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, and how you came out of Egypt. Our hearts have melted, Rahab says. The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab got converted. This is I don't say this, I, I get really upset when I hear Calvinists talk about non-believers so lightly. Oh, there's no hell. God loves it. No, God doesn't love it. God doesn't love it. That's wrong. But he has a purpose for it. And it's that believers would come to glorify him lovingly. It worked for Rahab. Hebrews 11, by faith, Rahab did what she did. James 2, Rahab was justified. Rahab got converted because of Pharaoh's destruction. Rahab got converted because of Pharaoh's destruction. I don't understand how the details of that work, but I see that it happened. 
Exodus 14, verse 4. We're not done with this yet. Don't, I'm not just going to move on here. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says, to taking the ultimate cause there. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, the glory is over Pharaoh, because Pharaoh is saying, basically, I'm God, right? God doesn't like it when we're not humble, right? Like, so Pharaoh wants the glory over God. God is going to get the glory over Pharaoh. God has proven greater than him. But the onlookers, the Egyptians who see it, they shall know that I am the Lord. The onlookers observe Pharaoh's destruction and they glorify God. 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Why is Jesus coming back? Is Jesus coming back because he's pumped up to exercise his wrath on these stinkers who never honored God? Yeah, come on. No, no. 2 Thessalonians 1. When he comes on that day to be glorified with the saints and to be marveled among all who believed. To be marveled among all who believed. To be lovingly glorified by his people. Not because Jesus just pumped up about wrath. I love my wrath. Yeah. No, that's not how Jesus feels. He's heartbroken about the sin that I believe he determined would happen, but he's heartbroken about it. we got to hold them both. I think that this reality is expressed in summary, and we're going to talk more about a lot of, in particular, about salvation. So this won't be the last we talk about unbelievers and believers and how that relates to God's sovereignty. This won't be the last time. Romans chapter 9, you've probably heard of this controversial passage as it relates to this conversation, but Romans 9, 23. I think it shows that the purpose of God's wrath is to make God's people all the more grateful and all the more glorious toward God. That's what I think God's purpose in his wrath is. And here's part of why I think that. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's non-believers. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order, why? Why, God? Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before him for glory. I think God's design, in part, I don't think this is a rock-bottom answer, by the way. I don't think this is a problem of evil, solved. I don't think we have an answer to the problem of evil. But part of God's motivation is, for having it, is such that we would see non-believers judged and say, Wow, God, why me? I love you, why me? I think that's part of God's purpose. I don't think that answers all of our questions. It doesn't answer all of mine. I think that's sobering. That's not just delightful. And God's not just delighted in it either. I don't delight in evil, he says. He says that. Let's believe him. But let's also believe that he has a purpose for it. Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Sin. What about sin? Some of this we've already kind of tied into. I think ultimately people sin because it was God's determined plan that they would. 1 Samuel 2, 25. They would not listen to the voice of their father. Why? Why wouldn't they? For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Why did they disobey? It wasn't because they had this ultimate autonomy. Although I think they were genuinely willing when they did it. I do. I think they did this of their own accord. Why? Ultimately, because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. At the same time, people are punished because they did wrong. Is that a contradiction? I don't think so. Why not? Because I think the Bible says both things. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down. Why? Because God declared that it would happen? That's not what 
is said in this passage. No. Why did God strike him down? Because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. He touched the ark. And he died because of his error. It was because of his error. It's genuinely because he did an error. It's genuinely because he did it. Ultimately, I think God determined that it would be. But we can't take away either of those things. God's purposing human sin and human responsibility at the same time for that sin. I'm going to say that sentence again. There's a few passages here that I'm going to read that show God's purposing of human sin and his purposing of human responsibility for that sin at the same time. We've talked about the cruel shepherd God raises up and then punishes, so I'm going to skip that one for now. That's in Zechariah 11. But okay, how about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who sacked Jerusalem? On the one hand, God causes Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Israel, point one. And then God punishes Nebuchadnezzar for destroying Israel. Jeremiah 25, I will send for all the tribes and for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servants, and I'll bring them against this land, this Jerusalem. I will devote them to destruction. This is God's punishment on Israel, that he's bringing Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. But God's going to punish Nebuchadnezzar now. Jeremiah 51, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. It's both. God is the ultimate cause, and God punishes that evil that genuinely happened from them willing it. Both of them. Even people who don't believe, ultimately don't believe, because God doesn't let them. Here's a few verses. Matthew 11, 20, 21. Uh, No, Matthew 11, 25. At that time, Jesus declared, this is, he's praying to God in the context of Pharisees who refuse to believe. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God hid it from them. God hid it from them. John 12, though he had done so many signs before them, Jesus in front of the uh, people that he was preaching to, though he had done all these signs, they didn't believe him, so that the word that was spoken by Isaiah would be fulfilled. Why didn't they believe? It was because of their hardness of heart, yes. But this is, I think this is an ultimate passage, so that the word would be fulfilled. God purposed it that way. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. God blinded their eyes. God blinded their eyes. I'm going to at least try to show why I think this is good news later on. But there's, there's, I'm going to try to, okay, it is, okay, I'm, 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 I'm seeing what time it is. Okay, okay. God's in control of kings and kingdoms. I'm just going to use one verse because we've already talked a lot about this anyway. Proverbs 21.1. This one's a pretty uh, famous kind of go-to verse that you, you may have heard before. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart, the heart is the center spiritually of all that we are in the Bible. All that we are, the king's heart, is in the hand of God. He turns it wherever he will. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay, general people. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God is the one who establishes what we end up doing. God is the one. He's providential over nature. Job 9. He who removes mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of place and his pillars tremble. I think a lot of us are familiar that God is providential over nature, so I won't, I won't talk a ton about that. God brings both, he both brings famine, but also removes famine. 
He brings it in Psalm 105, when he summoned a famine on the land and they broke all supply of bread. God is the one who summoned a famine. God is the one who removed that famine. It wasn't up to luck or chance of the crop's going to be good. God summons the famine, but then God removes the famine. Ezekiel 36, I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. So, okay, God brings famine, but he removes it. He does both. Disaster. Disastrous things, hor horrible events, right? Amos 3.6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Rhetorical question. No, disaster doesn't come to a city unless the Lord has done it. Isaiah 45, I form line create darkness, I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Okay, Satan and demons. I think, I think this, Job in particular, I mentioned some of this in my sermon, so I'll, I'll uh, not everybody was here. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it. But I think this is where we see a lot of wonderful hopefulness because of God's meticulous providence over the world. I'm going to summarize this because I can't read basically a chapter of Job right now. But, okay, the demons are accountable to God. There was a day when all of the demons came to present themselves to the Lord. This is in Job chapter 1, by the way, if you want to look at it. On Rowan, it's in my notes and everything. And Satan is accountable to God. And then God proactively suggests to Satan that he tempt Job or, or that he afflict Job. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered Satan my servant Job? God gives Satan the idea. God gives him the idea. And then God gives Satan some reign with definite boundaries. Some reign with definite boundaries. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Your hand, Satan. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan was not allowed to afflict Job. He had a definite boundary on what, on what he was allowed to do by God. And then when Satan is the one who goes and, um, and afflicts all of what Job uh, had, destroys his buildings, destroys his families, here's what the narrator of Job says. The fire of Satan fell from heaven and burned up the sheep. The fire of Satan... The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep. Satan does something. Who's ultimately doing it? Who's ultimately doing it? It's God who's ultimately doing it. God is in control. The whole event afterward is rightly attributed to God. Job says this, naked, you, you've heard this verse, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then a summary from the inspired narrator. Because some people will say, well, what if Job made a mistake? God is just recording Job's mistake. That, that is something people say. That's something to grapple with until you get to verse 22, I think, which is the next verse, which says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The Lord took away. It's the fire of God. The Lord took away. And that's right. He didn't charge God with wrong. He didn't say, God, you're wrong to do that. But he did say, God, you have done this. You've, you've taken away. Basically, the whole thing is repeated again when Satan comes back in the presence of God, and then God says, okay, you can touch him, but you can't take his life. Another definite boundary. At the end, that evil is not only attributed to Satan, it's attributed to God as well. Job 2. Job says, shall we, his wife tells him, curse God and die. This is horrible. Like, God is treating you this way. That is not the most encouraging move as a spouse, I would think. But anyway, that's not the point. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil, Job says. Shall we not receive evil from God? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job was right to say, we should receive evil from God. Job was right to say that. 
And then at the end of the book in Job 42, his friends showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Oh, I, didn't, I don't have this text. Okay, there's a text in Chronicles, and I think it's in Samuel. I literally just have God slash Satan incited. There's a passage in one book of the Old Testament, another book. I forget which one is which, but there's a passage where, do you remember where David numbers the people in Israel? He like He's like, how many people do I have? I want to number them. And God had expressly commanded, don't do that. One passage says, Satan incited David to number them. Satan incited. You know what the parallel in the other book of the Bible says that narrates the exact same event? God incited David to do this. God is in ultimate control, even of evil demonic forces, even of Satan. Satan is an instrument in God's hand. Satan is an instrument in God's hand. One example of why this is good news, and we, we see it, I think one way we see that this is good news is, and I, I brought this up in the sermon, in 1 Corinthians chapter, I think it's 10 verse 13, God says, you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. You will not be tempted, believers, beyond you can bear. How do we know that's true? Because God's the one using everything, working everything, everything according to the purpose of his will, which is that God's people would glorify him lovingly. God is not going to let us be tempted and brought too far. He's not going to let us, because he's the one doing it and he knows everything. He knows what we can handle. I think that's good news. Here's another example of good news because of this. A messenger of Satan is ultimately said to be a good thing. A messenger of Satan is ultimately said to be a good thing. Second Corinthians Seven to nine. That's not right. Okay, somewhere in the book of Second Corinthians, probably verses seven to nine, and I didn't write the chapter down. Um, it was two a.m., so that's that's how, that's what you get. To keep this is what Paul says in Second Corinthians, chapter X, verses seven to nine. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of my revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. What do you think the messenger of Satan's motivation was? To keep Paul from becoming conceited? I doubt it. No. Satan doesn't want us to honor God. But guess what? Joke's on him. God uses Satan to bring about his believers not becoming conceited. Greater holiness. Greater lovingly glorifying God. That's what Satan is ultimately used for. We're starting to see how some of this could be good news. Not I don't think we have a rock bottom answer, but I, I think we're starting to see some of it. Over death, uh, I'm gonna kind of expedite this one. Um, God is the one who says that he's the one who kills. Deuteronomy 32, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. First Samuel two, the Lord kills and brings life. There are many examples in scripture where God is said to be the one to take people down or to kill them. I will strike down the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast, Jeremiah 21, six. God is the one who ultimately is the cause of even killing death also suffering first peter 3 17 we often say things like i want to suffer according to god's will and that's so good that we say that because that's right we suffer in a way that is in accordance with what god wants but also god here first peter 3 17 it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be god's will than for doing evil it can sometimes be god's will that we suffer for doing good. God's will 
that we suffer. God's purpose in suffering, though. What's God's purpose in suffering? We're starting to get to why this is good news. Psalm 119. I love this verse. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. We suffer so that we would lovingly praise Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this, you rejoice that if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that your faith may be found to the result of praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? So that we would praise God. So that we would praise God. Also, 2 Corinthians 1. Why do we suffer? We suffer so that we may comfort others in suffering. That's not an ultimate answer to why we suffer, but that is one of God's purposes for why we suffer. 2 Corinthians 1, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we have received, which we have ourselves been comforted by God. I am suffering in affliction, comforted by God, in order that when others suffer, I can comfort them in God. That's part of God's purpose for suffering, which is an evil, I think. I think the Bible says it's an evil. Evil itself, God is said to raise up. 2 Samuel 12, Behold, I will raise up evil against you. Lamentations, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and evil, good and bad, come? Isaiah 45, I form light, create darkness. I make well-being, create calamity. Same word for evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. But God's ultimate goal, what's God's ultimate goal? That God's people would lovingly glorify him in part, at least, I don't think this is a rock bottom answer, but in part, I think evil exists that we would be sobered into repentance. Luke 13, I won't read this whole passage. Basically, there was a building that collapsed in the context of the New Testament that people asked Jesus about. And uh, Jesus says, do you think that these people who died in the fall of the building were especially evil because they suffered in this way. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that you, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, they weren't particularly worse. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is using disaster, evil, catastrophe to bring us to a sobered place of this could have been you. Repent and glorify me. Okay. We might be on time. Okay. I've, I know that I've emphasized more in this uh, class session God's orchestration of evil and suffering and harm more than I've emphasized his orchestration of good. I, and that's not because I think he more orchestrates evil. In fact, we're about, I haven't talked about my last and most important point. Hello. <laughs> Well, I got a light, so I, I can keep going. Um, oh, Lord, let us get to the really good part of this class, which is you. Um, my ADHD is totally crushing me right now. I, uh, uh, okay. I, 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 okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, Um, Sorry, guys. Thanks for your patience. Um, I don't think that it's lopsided. God does all the good things as well, right? I'm kind of offering in this class a corrective to how we normally think, though, that, well, God, God, God can't be associated with any of that. God, God doesn't do that on purpose. God only does good things on purpose. And it's true that God only does good things on purpose. That's true. That's ultimate. What is God's purpose for evil, even? I think 
ultimate, and I, I don't pretend to know how he does this, but he's the one who's good and all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise. I'm not. God has so purposed evil that it would bring about good, is what I think is the case. And it's all in his hands. One foreshadowing of this is in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You, I imagine some of you have heard this before. Joseph is talking to his brothers who tried to, who initially were going to kill him, but then decided, oh, he's our own flesh and blood. Why don't we just sell him into slavery, huh? So, those are some nice guys. Anyway, at the end of Genesis, Joseph faces his brothers who did that to him, that terrible thing. But in the process, God ended up making Joseph really high in command in the Egyptian government and delivered all of that, the known world at the time, from a, a famine that was spread throughout all of the known world. So, it ended up being that Joseph actually, by being hurt by his brothers in that way, ended up delivering the world of starvation. Here's what Joseph says to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Even, I mean, so God meant it. God meant, they, they purposed it. They meant it. They really meant, they, and they meant maliciousness. They meant murder. They meant, well, all right, we'll get some silver for our brother then. They sold him into slavery. They meant it. God meant it too. But they meant it with different motivations, didn't they? They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. I think this is maybe the most important verse, except for verses that talk about the crucifixion, a little bit of foreshadowing where I'm going to go for the last two minutes of this. The crucifixion is a big deal about this topic. But... Man, God used evil as an instrument to bring good, is what he did here. Genesis 45.5 says, God sent Joseph there. God sent me before you to preserve life. This is what Joseph says to his brothers, who sold him into slavery. God sent me before you to preserve life. Talk about, they'd be like, oh, we're so guilty. Oh my gosh, God sent me. He's saying, God sent me. Uh, Genesis, two verses later, God sent me to preserve for you a remnant on the earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. God's purpose of sin was to preserve and to give life. That is counterintuitive, paradoxical to me, because sin has produced death. We see that. We see that. Sin produces death. But God has so purposed evil that it would produce life. I think God can do that. I don't know all of how. But here's the greatest way that I know how he did. The greatest evil that ever was became the greatest good that ever was. And that's what the crucifixion was. Acts chapter 2, 23. Peter says this to the Israelites who killed Jesus. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why are we saved? It's because Jesus died for our sin. Jesus Man, he didn't do nothing. It, we, we so, I, I feel in some ways more frustrated by often Calvinists than even Arminians who I have these differences with because their discussions of evil are just flippant and it's not, the, the gravity that I think the Bible attributes to evil is not there and that frustrates me a lot. I think God did something very significant with evil. Talk about you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. They killed God. They crucified the Son of God. He was enthroned above all, but he was born in a manger. That's counterintuitive. He's the creator of all. 
and he has nowhere to lay his head. That's counterintuitive. He was rich. He had everything. He had the whole world. Yet he became poor and became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin. Talk about backwards. He was equal with God, and yet he suffered death at God's hand. He was beloved by God, and yet forsaken by God. When people talk about evil, I think they often forget that God, okay, they'll say, they'll say, look, God can't be who he says he is, because if he is good and all-powerful, then he would make a world in which evil doesn't exist, because evil's bad. That's what they say. That argument makes a lot of sense to me. It does. But I think that it neglects one of God's attributes, and that is his wisdom. God is also all-wise, and we're not. And I think when we are prepared to accuse God of wrongdoing like Job did, I think we need to sit down and say, God, I repent in dust and ashes of accusing you of wrongdoing. I hate myself. You can do whatever you want with your creation. And what did God do with his creation? Did he exploit his high, his high plates? Does he just do evil because he likes it? No, no, no. I can't think of anyone who took more personal investment in doing something good with evil than God, who was God, came down and took all the evil of the world upon himself. When we say, God, why do you allow evil? We also need to say, but Jesus, you took all evil. So it is not the case that God just does evil willy-nilly just because he likes it. He hates evil and took that which he hates. Why did he orchestrate the world this way? I don't know. Why is there death? I don't know, but he did die for us. He died. God, who is living, that's one of his attributes. He died. It's like, I don't even know how that's possible. And yet, he did it. God is good, and yet he took all the bad. Talk about he doesn't deserve any evil on himself. We do. We do deserve that. I think this is good news because God took it. I don't know that how that solves all of our problems. I'm not certain it even gets us to rock bottom. I don't think it gets us to rock bottom. But God did take it for us. That, I think, is all, the ultimate Christian answer to why does God orchestrate the world such that there is evil in it. God is using evil somehow for our good. And he is the God that I want to invite us all to trust in. So let's pray. I'm sure there's going to be questions. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, let's close with, with Matthew chapter 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Even these small, meticulous details of the world, sparrows, they don't fall apart from God, from God's meticulous providence. But we are even more valuable than they are. So let's be comforted in this meticulously providential God who loves us and has purposed the world such that we would lovingly glorify him. God, give me the glory that I had with you before they existed, John, before the world existed, John 17, that they may glorify me, that they may love you as I have loved you. Man, talk about a glorious, loving relationship. Talk about the goal. I'll pray. Let's pray.
Lord, we do not understand all of your ways, but you accomplish all of our ways, God, and we thank you for that. We don't pretend to understand. We don't pretend that this is lighthearted. God, we, we acknowledge it's sobering. And I pray that we who are saved would be sobered by the great reality that sin is. And that we would thank you for being providential over it and having good purposes for it. God, many of us have suffered. I, I, I've probably suffered less than a lot of people in this room, God. And so maybe it, it sounds rich coming from me, but God, thank you for having a meticulous purpose for everything in the world. Thank you for having your goal be that we would lovingly glorify you. We pray that we would lovingly glorify you. And that's not a contradiction that prayer works because you say it does. That's another mystery, but we just live in it, God. And so we pray to you expecting that things do happen because of prayer and comforted that you have already determined what will happen. And so we have peace in knowing that we are secure in your hands that don't let us go. God, that is freedom. That's true freedom. Thank you for giving that to us. May we worship you accordingly. In your providential name, amen.